Good. Good morning. My name is Dan Margulies. I'm filling in for by Lindsay while he's away this week. He is on vacation. Much a much deserved vacation. Uh, today's staff is going to be Bavakama Pei Gimel, 83. There's no vacation from the DAF. I'm sure he will be learning DAF Yomi while he's on vacation, but he's not able to teach the DAF Yomi while he's on vacation. Today is the 18th day of, of Av, and it's the 22nd of August, and the summer is starting to wind down. All right. We are going to start on the exactly the last... Something like that. Something like that. We'll see. So start from the last line on Pei Bet Amud Bet. Uh, the Mishnah had discussed uh, the fact that it is forbidden to raise pigs, uh, oh, it's interesting to think in other other cultures that we have to talk about Chasmasibanis, so I have to talk about Chasmasibanis. Um, in the Odyssey, at the end, Odysseus returns home and the, the two different uh, people from his household who he's interacting with extensively are the swineherd and, uh, and the shepherd. And the, obviously the, the relationship that he has with the different uh, people who watch the different animals um, the, but the swineherd becomes this, like very prominent character in the end of the Odyssey. Obviously, Jewish tradition, we don't have any swineherds to have as a good characters in our stories. All of our good characters are shepherds. So, okay. The Gemara says, the Chachmas Yivanis. So, the, the previous part of the Gemara, which we read yesterday, had already noted that there was this prohibition instituted during the time of the Hasmonean dynasty, during the time of the Hashemunayim, uh, or perhaps later, perhaps during the time of the Chorban, uh, around the time of the Roman rule, that it would be prohibited to for someone to teach their child Chochmas Yivanis, the wisdom of the Greeks, Greek wisdom. Uh, so we're going to have to see now what is that referring to. Uh, we know the Gemara has a range of opinions about the value of, of the Greek language and the Greek, uh, Greek intellectual pursuits. We saw uh, a few weeks ago the Gemara in Babakama itself quotes uh, uh, some of that Morayim quote from Aesop's fables. So the, certainly Chazal and the rabbis and the general populace were familiar with many of these things. The question is how much of a positive influence or, or a good thing they are to be studying and how much not. You can write it to Torah Right, you can write it. Exactly. The Gemara Megillah discusses, uh, based on the Pasuk in the end of uh, Parshat Noah, the Pasuk says, Yat Hashem L'yafet V'yishkon Ba'olei Shein. Elohim, right. That's exactly the point. It's Elohim, right. Um, so, have a lot of words that are based well, there are many Greek words, but also that uh, there is a notion, at least among people who themselves spoke Greek, that Greek was a good language to be used for Torah study or conversation. So we're going to see here. Um, just to note, uh, Tosos deals with the question of when did this Gezeira get instituted? Was it during the Hasmonean period or was it during the Roman period? And Tosos says at one point they made the Gezeira and maybe the Gezeira really didn't kick in or wasn't uh, popular until much later. That is, we know the general principle that if people are unable to keep the Gzeira, then the, the Sanhedrin doesn't really have the power to institute it to begin with. That's the sense of Gzeira Sheinat Tibur Yecholim La'amodba. And then, alternatively, uh, Tosa suggests that there's a difference between what this uh, Gemara had said here, that um, it says, Arur, um, sorry, just lost the place. Um, a person who teaches their child Greek wisdom should be cursed, and the, the gear set that's quoted in Tosfot, is there a prohibition, or is it, it's not prohibited, but you'll get cursed if you do it? Or, most people would prefer not to get cursed anyway. We're going to see that getting cursed is going to be an afternoon later on the next 
uh, next Amud, which is interesting to note those two different uh, two different versions. So the Gemara says, Chachma Sivanis mi Asra. Is Chachma Sivanis really forbidden? But we have this price that says, Amar Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Hanasi said, Be'eretz Yisrael, Lashon Sursai Lama. Why do they speak this Sursayan language? Now, we don't know what that means. Uh, according to Rashi, it seems to just be speaking in an unclear way, perhaps. Hulashon Tzach Vesarsuri Lashon Nil'adhu. It's confusing, but Greek is very clear. Uh, Tosa says Sursai just means Aramaic, but it means the Palestinian Aramaic. The Aramaic spoken in the land of Israel that Rebbe Yehuda Nasi was familiar with. That's the, the Aramaic of, of the Yerushalmi and of the Targum compared to what's going to be called Lashon Arami, uh, which is going to be the, the Aramaic of the Talmud Bavli. Different so dialects. Rebbe was in Eretz Yisrael. Rebbe was in Eretz Yisrael, exactly. So he says, in the land of Israel. It's, it's not, is it, is it Syriac? Uh, perhaps. I'm not sure. Syriac, I think, is a Syriac is a kind of Aramaic. Like the, you know, the Well, let's see what Rebbe Hudanasi says. He says, I'm a Rebbe, the Eretz Yisrael Lashon Sursi Lama. Why did they speak this Lashon Sursi? Ola Shon HaKodesh, Ola Shon Yivani, they should either speak Hebrew Hebrew, like real Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh, Biblical Hebrew, or they should speak Lashon Yivani, the Greek language. So obviously speaking Greek is perfectly fine, the Greek language. Interesting, why is Hebrew called Lashon HaKodesh, a very important machog in the Rambam and Ramban. Rambam in Mornehuchim says the reason Hebrew is called Lashon HaKodesh is because it doesn't have what we would say vulgar words, dirty words, curse words. It doesn't have those kinds of words. So the language is uh, speaks pure in a sense of, of euphemism. That is, things that we would prefer not to say explicitly, there's no way to say explicitly. Even things like um, the sexual act, for example, is called bia. It just means entering in. It's not really a description of what's going on. It's a euphemism. Um, compared to other languages, which have specific words for those sorts of things. Uh, Ramban, obviously, displeased with the Ramban. Ramban, Parshaki Tisa says the reason why Hebrew is called Lashon HaKodesh is because that's the language that God wrote the Torah in. That's the language that angels speak. That's the language that God speaks in. That's the language that is the language of creation and has an intrinsic holiness. Uh, so what the phrase Lashon HaKodesh means, is it about how we relate to the language and how we can use it? Or is it about um, something to do with God directly? Interestingly, of course, the Rambam obviously wouldn't attribute the use of a human language to God. So obviously that's Ramban is willing to have that anthropomorphic sense because it imbues the language with the direct holiness, but it's an interesting question. Okay, I'm a Rabiosi. Rabiosi has a similar approach to Bavel. He says, Bavel, Lashon Arami Lama, why do they speak this Aramaic language? Oh, Lashon HaKodesh, oh, Lashon Parsi. They should either speak Hebrew or they should speak Persian. They should speak uh, Farsi. So, meaning the Aramaic language seemingly here from both perspectives is like, okay, what's the real value of it? Now, we know in other places, Chazal talk about how wonderful the Aramaic language is. It's the only language which is, appears in the Torah besides Hebrew. Uh, describing Lavan, the, the word Yegar Sahaduta is the Aramaic translation of Galaid. And also we know that, the, obviously, the fact that Jewish people used it, the fact that the Talmuds were written in Aramaic, the fact that the Targumim were written in, into Aramaic means that it had some significance. So, just an interesting change of perspective. These rabbis are obviously saying Greek and also Persian being the language of the ruling the ruling dynasty at the time in the, that location, and a useful language, but also clear, uh, elegant language, perfectly reasonable to, to know and to learn. So then what's the problem of Chachmas Yivanis? So the Gemara says, Lashon Yivani Lechud, Chachmas Yivanis Lechud. There's a difference between the Greek language and the Greek wisdom. 
Now, we still don't know what, what it means, Greek wisdom. Maybe it means philosophy. Maybe it means Greek literature. Maybe it means something to do with some of those things. Not really sure. They haven't told us, probably because they don't want us to know. Um, so what do they say? And still the Gemara adds further. But who said that Chachmas is Asr? Meaning, we already rejected the notion that the Greek language should be Asr to learn. And now we're going to even <laughs> combat the question of whether the Greek wisdom is Asr to learn. It says, So Rabbi Yehuda, the Amora, very late, is quoting from Rabbi Shimon Ben Gabriel, who was one of the Tanaim. So it's actually a very long tradition. He says, a, a, a Midrash, actually, on a passage from Eicha, from the third chapter of Eicha, my eye is is most wailing for for itself out of all of the daughters of the city. And he says, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, he's the son of Rabban Gamliel, what does he say? There were 1,000 children in my father's house. Probably it means not just Rabban Gamliel's children, but the students of, of his household, but and the people who were part of his, his sort of, he had a school or he had a, a community perhaps. And he says, 500 went to study Torah, and the other half, 500 went to learn Greek wisdom. And the only ones who are left after the Horban, that is, many of them, or all, almost all of them, 998 of those 1,000 children uh, perished in the Horban, the only ones who survived are me, myself, and my cousin who lives in Asia. And so therefore, it sounds like you had a perfectly good choice. You could either go study Torah or you could go study Chachmas Ivanis if you were in Rabban Gamliel's house. So what's the justification for that? Amri Shani based Rabban Gamliel, Shahayu Krovin Lamalfus. No. Rabban Gamliel's family had political power. They had to be able to have conversations with the Roman government and to be able to have those kind of interactions. So that's a permission for them to study to study Chachmas Ivanis because of Karov. They were Karov Lamalfus. They were close to the ruling class. And we know throughout uh, Jewish history and throughout uh, halacha, there are often exceptions that have been made to certain kinds of uh, halachot for people who need to have that flexibility to be able to interact with the non-Jewish authorities. Uh, one of the main examples is that, what? Well, Yosef, obviously, Yosef shaved his beard, Yosef shaved off his, uh, shaved off his payas and all sorts of things. Um, the, some of the things that Esther had to do when she was in the in the palace have been justified in a similar way. Uh, fascinating question is, does this only apply to Durabanans or even to Durabanans? That is, the Chachmas Yivanis question we saw was a Gezeira that the rabbis made. So if the rabbis made the Gezeira, then they could make exceptions to it. They could say it's allowed in the case of, of uh, Karo Blumalfos. But uh, interestingly enough, we're going to see the next example. What does the next example say? If you get this certain kind of haircut, a Kumi haircut, then that's the Midarche Haimori. That's Aramean ways, which are forbidden. Uh, that's a code word in Chazal, in the Tosefta, in the Mishnah, for describing all sorts of things, usually with a magical basis, but more generally, something associated with Abodazara, something associated with idolatry, or a Bolarit. A Bolarit is a different kind of a haircut, which is also for, prohibited. Um, so if you've got this certain kind of haircut, that's prohibited because it identifies you as someone non-Jewish, or you look, you're trying to look like someone non-Jewish, or trying to look like one of the priests of the Avodah or something like that. Okay, but, uh, so, Avotulamos bar Ruvain, Avotulamos, the son of Ruvain, he tirul is Safer Kumi. The rabbis allowed him to get this kind of haircut. Why? Because he was, 
close with the Roman government. The Gemara in Me'ilah notes actually that his son, Reuven ben Abtolomus, was involved in, in many of the conversations with the Romans as well. Uh, so the fact is, you know, this family had obviously prominence with the, with the government. Okay. And the the family of Ravan Gamliel, they allowed them, interestingly, of course, the pun almost, lesaper, to get a haircut, and lesaper, to speak, to tell the stories, lesaper, so they could discuss because they had to be able to have, you know, it's like, well, I need to be able to have something to talk about when I go to the, you know, to have even casual conversation or to be up to date on those kind of cultural uh, points to be able to have those conversations so they won't think you're some kind of... So we still don't know what Chachmasivanis is. It's probably something that you're lissaper, that you tell a story. So perhaps I was saying perhaps that's an indication that it has something to do with the Greek literature, but it's not not for sure. Uh, Important point is, one second, if we said that the haircut problem is... Is midarfei ha'emori. That category is We're not allowed to follow the ways of non-Jewish nations that are characteristically identi- identify one as as acting in a non-Jewish way. Um, the question is, to what things does that apply? So interestingly enough, Kesef uh, Mishnah, in order to explain this exception, how can you say karov l'malchus is an exception for darfei ha'emori if it's a deoraita prohibition? It must be. That, and he applies a principle that's not applied in the Gemara to this, but he, he extends... Whatever's mentioned in the Torah, those few things. So it's not... But it's not just what's mentioned in the Torah, it's actually The rabbis get to determine the parameters of what is the Deoraita. That is, the Torah has a prohibition, a very general prohibition. There are many things that fall under that prohibition, including this kind of haircut. But the rabbis were able to say, if you're Karav Lamalchut, you don't have to worry about that kind of haircut. That's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's a you very... Can't go to college, ah, so the next question is the Maharik. The Maharik has a, an opinion which is quoted in Shulchan Aruch, where he talks about uh, the big question in his day was, if you go to university, can you wear the academic robes? This was like the late Middle Ages, I guess, or, or very the early. Maharik, Maharik is Cologne. Is like 14th, 15th, 15th century. So that's like the late Renaissance. Uh, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. So the Maharik was yeah, asked about already two hundred years right. old. Right. So he he was asked this question: Can you wear academic robes when you go to the university? And he said, "There's two different kinds of things that that could apply to. There are things which are totally illogical and have no reason. That's what's prohibited because then the only reason you would be doing it is to impersonate a non-Jew or to blend into non-Jewish society." But something that makes a lot of sense why you would do it, like if you have an advanced degree, wearing the clothes of that, of, of that, like you wear, colors, you wear you, right, you have this degree, so you wear that robe, or you work in this guild, so you wear right. that kind of guild hat or something like that. So those kinds of things would be allowed because that's for business, that's professional garb. Okay, but that doesn't answer the haircut thing. Though. So the haircut thing is the is the um, is the Catholic mission, which has Hazal had the right to make. Agree with that too. Yeah. And he act, and, and the Maharik's uh, chuva becomes the basis for so much more of the discussion about the Chukut Dam much later, um, which got extended to questions. Um, one of the biggest um, modern discussions of the Chukut becomes uh, the question uh, dealt with in the Sri Deish, I think, about the Bat Mitzvah. How much is 
having a bat mitzvah celebration, bechukozehem or not. That is, so the Amorim are having bat mitzvah. Well, obviously the non-Jewish people are not having bat mitzvahs, but the question was if non-observant Jewish communities were yeah, having. How, how you get from that to that's very dangerous. Well, well, so yeah, but that's where the conversation comes, and, and through that he has a whole long discussion of what the chukozehem is about more broadly as well. Okay, the Gemara continues. Tenerubana. A person should not raise a dog unless it is attached to a chain or to a leash always. of some kind. Presumably, always. Presumably, the dog should be restrained in some way that it cannot escape. Now, obviously, Chazal, as I think we're going to see, the discussion here is about, first of all, a dog who lives outdoors, not as about the dog who lives indoors. The dog who is constrained to living indoors anyway can't escape. The question is, how is the dog going to run? Well, worried about like it's, you know, barking and you know, miscarriages, and even if it is indoors. But a dog can bark even if it's chained yeah, up. Yeah, but if it's behind like a door, you know, <laughs> and, and it's chained up, then it's going to be farless. Okay, so we'll the dog, see. you know, you walk in, jump so, over something. So let's see what the Gemara says. Tener the rabbis taught in the Brayta. A person should not raise a dog unless it is attached to a chain. The borderlands. I've heard it pronounced Sefer. It could be Safar, whatever it is. A person could raise a dog if you live in the border town. That is, even if it's not chained up. The dog could be left off the chain some of the times if you live in the border. Why? To protect the border. The same reason we're not allowed to make Ir Hanidacha at the border, because it will reduce the territory of Eretz Israel. So, too, to have a vicious dog who's on the loose in the border territory will prevent people from trying to encroach on our city. Yes? What's the pun here between Safar, the Safar? Yeah, there's the some, it's a mnemonic point. It's right. to help oh, with the Sigyot. It's extraordinarily clever. It's very clever, because what they did is they were discussing pigs. They went into Chachmat Ivanit, which went into haircuts which comes back to now to dogs, which was in the next part of the Mishnah. So it's really right. uh, very elegantly woven. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the halakha is that you are allowed to raise a dog in the borderlands uh, city. As long as the dog is tied up during the day, you could release the dog at nighttime. So deter intruders. To deter intruders, right. The people know, you know, my dog is, is roaming the streets at night. They're, they're going to be less inclined to come and try to encroach on my territory. Okay. So Tanya. Rabbi Eliezer Hagadolomir Hamagadel Kalabi Mikimigadel Hazirim. He takes a much more negative approach to dogs. If you raise dogs, it's like raising pigs. Okay, so we saw someone who raises pigs and said, Arur Hamagadel Hazir Barat Yisrael, right? You're not allowed, it's a cursed is a person who raises pigs, uh, so raising a dog is comparable. Why? Because it basically serves no purpose in terms of the Jewish lifestyle. There's no real reason in a Chazal's mind, to have a dog. What was the purpose of having a dog? Was either for hunting, which Jews wouldn't be doing, or maybe it's to protect your sheep, so that's a good reason to have a dog, I think, from Chazal's mindset. But if you're just like, you make your business raising and selling dogs, you know, like, why do you do that? That's basically his point. Like, they didn't have pets. Then they didn't have pets, exactly. This is talking about working animals, and modern pets are obviously different, a different question entirely. So he says, so what's the difference between that opinion and the opinion that just says it's forbidden to raise a dog unless it's chained up? It says, when they came out of Arur, because if you raise pigs, it's really Arur, it's cursed. Raising dogs, nobody ever said it was cursed until Rebele Yezer uh, came along. Interesting to note, if you consider that previous post, which is worse, right? Which is worse, Arur or just Asur? So here it sounds like, oh, it was Asur, but it wasn't Arur. It's forbidden, but you weren't cursed for it. And then he comes along and says, even you even get the curse. The previous Amud 
Coast Coast seems to take the opposite approach, that a, a ruler could kick it, and you could say someone is cursed for doing something even if it's permitted. It's kind of an interesting balance. Okay. So you think modern poker is differentiated between... I think, again, I own a dog. So the post game I've spoken to uh, would say that the, the halachot involving raising a dog, we're going to see, obviously, a Kelev Ra, a vicious dog, is is prohibited to raise. So you have to make sure you train the dog to be safe and to, to not attack people. Number two, the dog should be restrained when in public. It shouldn't just be allowed to run around in the street. I think the halacha still applies, the sense of like not letting the dog just wander around in, in public streets. Um, so, yeah, I think those halakhot still do apply. There's obviously a responsible way to raise a dog, even if it's a safe, friendly, happy dog. But not necessarily in your backyard. In your backyard is, is Rishay Yachid. It's different. No, but again, they had, you know... Oh, but dogs. they didn't have fences around their backyard. Like, everything was... Yeah, anyway, okay. fine. So I, I don't know about that. I don't have a backyard. I live in an apartment. Okay. Amar of Yosef Bar Minyumi. Amar of Nachman. The whole year has Mukhala Sefer. So, so what what... Oh, sorry. Bavel here has Mukhala Sefer dummy. Bavel, that is not the entire nation of Bavel, Babylonia, but Rashi points us, Bavel meaning the city of Neharda, which is the, the great city of Bavel. So, Neharda, which was also called Bavel, that city is like a city on the border regarding this halacha, that you're allowed to let your dog off the leash at nighttime. Actually, I think that's the halacha in Central Park as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay. So, Targum and Neharda, and, and that's exactly what Well, either because it was on the border, or if you take a look at Rashi, Rashi actually has a, a very interesting uh, suggestion for what we have uh, nowadays. How, what do we consider to be like a Jewish town? Look in Rashi, Babel. It has a permanent settlement. And there are many Jews there. So then, mutar legadel klavim ba'ir hasmuchalas efer ki'ilhi ba'aret Yisrael. So you treat Babel like Eretz Yisrael regarding this halacha, as long as you have two criteria. Permanent settlement, it's not people who are living there only temporarily. And number two, there are many Jews. So perhaps you could say the same thing about Riverdale. Well, maybe you don't have as many Jews as Neharda did. But maybe, uh, you know, parts of Brooklyn, parts of Manhattan perhaps, uh, certainly parts of New Jersey, are areas with a permanent settlement of Jews, a well-established Jewish community, and the sense is that, again, our relationship with our neighboring towns is very different than they had back then, but the sense you don't want people encroaching in your town, so if the people in Teaneck are worried that the people in Englewood are going to come and, you know, invade. Uh, invade, so they could release the dogs at night, to, perhaps. Okay. Um, okay. But it's interesting, those two criteria, Yishuv Kabua, permanent settlement, and, and Yisrael Harbet, many Jews. So that's what makes Babel like Israel. Obviously, Babel in no way is actually like Israel, uh, but they had to do their best. Okay. So Darish Rabbi Dostai, Demin Biri, Ubanta, Ubnuchayomar, Shuva Hashem Rivot of Israel. The Pasuk says, when the Aron would rest, they would cry out, or Moshe would cry out, that God should return, return with or return to the Rivavot, the tens of thousands, Alfei Yisrael, of thousands of Israel. Now, Tosfo points out, in the desert, there were not tens of thousands of thousands of Jews, because 10,000 times 1,000 is a million, and we know that there were only 600,000. So that calculation is not meant to be taken as a multiplication, but addition. Rivavot is 20,000 to 10,000, and Alfei, again, Alafim, plural, so 2,000. He says, The Shekhinah does not descend and dwell amongst the Jewish people unless there are 
22,000 Jewish people present. Um, okay, so maybe that's our threshold. How many Jewish people live in Riverdale? Uh, question. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Ah, you asked Tosos' question. Even one, even two, even three, even ten. So obviously there are different amounts of the Shrina that you could have. We know that there's a certain level of the Shekhinah's presence when there are 600,000 Jews present, like at Mahmoud Har Sinai, there's a special bracha for that. 22,000, this Gemara says is important. Less than that, well, 10, obviously, if there are 10 Jewish men, you have a minion. For 10 Jewish people, you have Kiddush Hashem. Uh, if there are three, you have the Zimun. If there are two, you can have the Chavrusa. If there's even one person alone studying, there's still uh, God that comes and joins in with the learning. So obviously, there are different levels of how much the Shekhinah could be present, but here he says 22,000, okay? So what if it was chaserachat? What if there was one person missing? What if it was um, um, 21,999 people? And there was a pregnant woman who was about to give birth. That is, so the 22,000th Jewish person will become, will be here in, in just a few minutes, and therefore the Shekhinah is going to come. The Ruyela Hashlim, she's going to fill out the, the number. And the dog snapped at her. The Hipila, and she had a miscarriage at that point, and was, and the child was not alive in order to fulfill that twenty-two thousand. Therefore, the dog having snapped at her, a vicious dog barking, is what caused the Shechina to not come and visit the Jewish people. Right. Well, that sounds like regardless of what you do, would be a problem. Well, not exactly. That is that seems to be a justification of Rabbi Lazar Hagadol. That is, uh, the presence of a dog can cause complications that in the end will cause the Shechina to be separated from the Jewish people. So, a woman was coming to bake in someone's house. We know that, uh, we saw this already previously in the, in the Sefta, that the women would come to grind their wheat in their friend's house, or they would come to bake in their friend's house. People, different people had different parts of the process. Maybe somebody had a millstone, somebody had an oven, or different things. They were shared. Uh, so people would go over to each other's house to, to cook. Okay, so this woman went to someone's house to bake. So, and the dog snapped at her. So, like, the owner of the dog said, don't worry about it. Bark is worse than Something like that. He says, take, take the, the, the fang teeth out. Not fangs, but the, the canine teeth. So, he would take them out and throw them in the trash. See, so she says, like, take away your good wishes. And throw them to the pigs. Kvar, Kvar Nadvlad. We already, had the already had the connection with pigs and dogs. And so she says, Kvar Nadvlad. That is, once the dog had barked, the child had already somehow turned over in her womb. She knew that it was going to be a miscarriage. And at that point, she said, well, you can't comfort me by telling me, oh, don't worry about it. The dog is going to not be a problem. Uh, it's important to consider the way Rashi frames it. Uh, take a look in Rashi. Tibuteich, Shekhili Tibuteich. Take away your good wishes, Netula. Like your good wishes thrown onto the thorns. So why are you um, wishing me good nechama, good consolation? Uh, it's totally worthless. Hevel, it's totally worthless. I think this is one of the keynote actually. It's called Matanachameni uh, Hevel, at least in Ashkenazic keynote, I think. Uh, and also, it's interesting to note. You know, we think about going to a, a Beit Ha'avel and things like that. There are certain periods of time in a person's life where they are not yet ready to receive Tanchumin. We know the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot talks about, um, it says that, you, you can't wish someone Tanchumin. So the period before the body has been buried, we don't, the person isn't yet ready to receive 
consolation for that. So it's a similar kind of thing. Like, don't try to wish some, some, someone something at the wrong time. Yes? I want to make sure I understand that she, this woman was the, she would have been made the 22,000th person, right? Right. The baby. The dog right. barked. So she could have just gotten scared and run off. The whole thing about the miscarriage is like an added layer. Like I don't, we don't need to stay with it, but there's something else that's going. Well, it's on that the twenty-two thousandth person was going to be the infant. The that's my question. Right. In other words, the ubar would have been the twenty-two right. thousand, so not her. Right. Hashlim. She being pregnant was going to fill she up. The was, so it was not her herself. Right. It was the Ubar itself. It was right. the infant. Now, right. that's because it needs to be 22,000 men? No, I think women as well. Oh, exactly. Right. So women really herself two, right. She was the second to last person, right. and then she was going to be Masi because she counted as two. Right. Okay. So, Gamar continues the last little bit of Perikmuruba. Ain't porcine nishvin leoni. You cannot spread traps for doves within, the Mishnah had said, within 30 reese. 30 reese is equivalent to four meals, uh, which is a little bit less than four of our miles. Um, four meals is the distance you, a normal person could walk in about 72 minutes. And we know that because of all the questions about when, when is Seda Kochavim and things like that. So you cannot spread traps for the doves within 30 reese, that is four meals of the city. Because presumably people who live in the city keep their dove coats within a short walk of the city, and if you spread traps near the city, you'll be catching other people's doves. At least there's a concern there that you'll be stealing the doves from other people. So the Gemara says, me Do you really need to travel so far? That is, do the doves themselves travel so far that you have to travel even farther to escape yeah. the, uh, beyond, beyond their reach? When you build a dove coat, you have to just make sure it's only 50... 50 amot away from the city. Uh, so, basically, the first 50 amot, uh, that's when the birds are hungry and they're going to come and eat stuff. So you have to make sure that they're not within uh, 50 amot of the city, that they're not going to come and eat people's food. But beyond that, once they've eaten their fill and they're full of food, then they'll fly even up to four, four meals, 30 reese beyond. So there's how much space around the dovecote do the birds need to find food, and then there's an even larger space where they're willing to fly. They only eat close to where they live, but they'll fly farther away. But too low. But is that really true? There's another opinion in the Brighta that says you, within a settled area, you cannot spread the nets to catch the doves, even within 100 meal. 100 meal is very far distance. If four meal it takes 72 minutes, so it's 25 times that distance. That's a, you know, that be a, a full day's amount yeah, of traveling. Walking. I mean, 24 walking. hours of walking. That's like a two or three days journey, depending on, you know, how much of the day you walk. So, no, it's talking specifically about Yishuv uh, Kramim, an area that, not a settled area that's populated, but a settled area where there are vineyards. That is, if there are vineyards around, the birds can stop off and rest and then pick up again and fly more, and then stop and rest, and then pick up and fly more. So obviously they could travel much farther. They could travel even 100 uh, 100 meals. Uh, Or alternatively, it's an area where there are many dove coats, and the doves could go and find a place to rest, and then they'll, again, it's like dove motel. They'll fly, you know, step by step. 
specifically Mishum Shovachim Gufaihu, so then maybe you should just mention it uh, regarding the fact that there are the dove coats themselves. Baisema, alternatively, Perhaps this is a difference between regarding Jewish uh, dove coats that we have to provide an even farther uh, distance, that is before meal, compared to non-Jewish dove, doves where we only care about 50 amot. Or, or, alternatively, or regarding ownerless doves, in which case there should be no concern of catching them, and therefore you could even go closer. Or if they were yours. So you could spread nets close to your own doves, because then whatever you're going to catch, either you'll catch wild ones, or you'll catch your own, but you're not going to catch anybody else's. Hadron Alach Merubel, now we continue with Perak HaKodo, we turn to Daf, pay Gimel on the bed, start a whole new discussion. The, the, the concern with the dove coats in the distance yes. is about theft is of about other people's doves, some or kind is it about of, the noise and the mess? I think the, it's about the theft. And that's why the concern there is that we don't have, and again, this is more lifnimi shurat hadim kind of thing. Because again, doves, raising doves, it's not like each little dove has a tag attached to it that says it belongs to who. You know, there is a sense of people, the doves know where to come home at night. So you own whatever ones come home to your dove right, coat. Yeah, that figure where they find the dove on the ground and right. the one leg is on one side, exactly, one right. leg on the other, and it's in, that's an ownership. Right, it's, it's all about ownership. Here. It's the same thing here. So this is a sense of, and that's exactly the point about the Ovei Kochavim, even an idolater, there are different rules regarding how much or how little it's appropriate to, to steal from non-Jews. Obviously, it's not appropriate to steal from them, but how far beyond the letter of the law, how much do we have to consider regarding non-Jews? Perhaps a lower threshold than we would have for Jews. That is, the relationship within the Jewish community might demand keeping farther distance, like good neighborliness mm. is different than what would be uh, between a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person at that time, perhaps. Um, the first six chapters of Bavakama had been about mostly um, uh, damages caused by your property, with some discussion of Adam Hamazik, a person who themselves causes damage. The seventh parak we saw Parak Maruba dealt with Geneva theft, and then also had extended discussions about all other sorts of topics. And now Parak Hachovel, we return to Adam Hamazik, the per- uh, damages caused by a person. The mission begins. Hachovel b'chaviro. If a person punches another person, there are five things that you have to pay back. Nezek. The actual damage caused. We're going to see how that's evaluated. Each of these is going to be a major discussion. How do we evaluate each of these five things? How does the Beitin assess to determine? Because you hear about crazy court cases nowadays. Someone gets a cup of coffee and they spill it on themselves and they say the coffee was too hot and they sue the company and they get $10 million. So obviously, you know, spilling a hot cup of coffee on your lap is probably not worth $10 million. So we're going to have to see what, how these things are mm-hmm. assessed. So the Gemara says, Nezek, Sa'ar, Sa'ar, is pain and suffering, ripui, medical expenses, boshet, uh, uh, sorry, beshevet, uh, time off of work, and boshet. Boshet is embarrassment. So each of these is now going to be explicated by the Mishnah. Mishnah says, benezek ketzad. So what does it mean, nezek? Simeyet eno, kitayet yado. If you blinded someone's eye or you chopped off someone's hand, shiberet raglor, you broke his foot, ro'ino toki iluhu eved. You consider, what if this person were being sold as a slave right now? So, Evidin Karbashuk, being sold in the, in the marketplace, you see how much this person would have been worth beforehand as a slave and how much it would have been worth afterwards. And that's the difference in value. We don't say how much is a hand worth. We saw this already discussed when we talked about the assessment of properties uh, here too. Okay. 
Oh, it's in the next. Oh, the article. Oh, here. Right, there's, in the article. Gotcha. What's this one right here, David? Next one here? Well, these that's are all two. Hebrew. Uh, what's in the, yeah, this, this is the whole thing. That's also volume one. Yeah, volume three storage. So then I'll try to explain very clearly. Okay. So the point of Nezek is that it's evaluated by taking the difference of two prices. That is, how much this person would be worth as a slave now and how much they would have been worth as a slave before the injury. And you subtract. That's the way it's assessed, and that's meant to be a kula. That's meant to be a leniency regarding the amount paid. Generally, we try to find leniencies in these assessments because you're trying to take somebody's money away. If you're trying to take somebody's money away, we have to be lenient. We can't take too much money away. Okay, the next one, Sa'ar. So how do we assess Sa'ar? What if I puncture someone? I stab them with something very sharp, like a needle or a nail, so that doesn't leave any actual permanent injury. All it does is cause pain, because it penetrates directly into the flesh. It's not like chopping off someone's finger or hand. So in that case, even if it's underneath their fingernail, which we know hurts a lot, that's how they test if people are alive, is they, is they check their reflex by sticking a needle under their fingernail. Okay, a place where it doesn't leave any permanent injury. So, we would assess how much they would want to get paid to undergo such a painful procedure. That is, this is like some of these game shows. They say, well, you know, if you let this guy hit you with a hammer, then we'll pay you, you know, $10,000 and you know, or something like that. So, again, we would have to see how much a reasonable person would be willing to undergo this kind of pain and suffering in order to in order to earn some cash. Okay. Okay. I, I don't want to be annoying, but alti for no means underneath as opposed to on. Perhaps on the nail, but then it's hard to understand what exactly. what that so, means. So the prepositions really are very fluid. I'm not sure. Or maybe it means on the fingernail, and the point, point is exactly the opposite. Not that it's a sensitive area, but actually that's a very resistant area. And that it, really, you know, or no, that, that if a person stabbed me on my fingernail, yeah. I would only get a very, very little amount of tsar right. because there's no pain involved. There's right, something going on something with the litmus test. Yes, period. that's for sure. Ripui, what about medical expenses? So hikahu, if you hit him, chayavli rapotel, you are obligated to pay for, it's not explicitly, you are obligated to heal, heal that person. We obviously understand there's some people who are trained in how to heal, and there's some people who don't know how to heal. So you hire someone who's capable of doing that, uh, but it's not explicit in the Mishnah. So Allah if some kind of um, uh, disease or scab grows up afterwards, so if there's some kind of further complication or gangrene or something like that, if it's because of the initial injury, then that's within the purview of the initial damage. But if it's for a totally separate reason, then the person who caused the damage is exempt. So, uh, what if it healed and then it got worse again? And healed and it got worse again. You're still obligated to heal it because that's still part of the continuation of the initial injury. But if it's fully healed, then if it gets worse after that, that is, it's fully healed, and then something else happened, at that point, the person can always claim, well, yeah, but it fully healed already, so it must be something new. Okay, interesting point in uh, the machloka between Rashi and the Rush, just about the question of uh, Nezek. That is, the Nezek is evaluated by the slave market. Rashi thinks that refers to the Eved Kna'a, uh, sorry, Eved Ivri. Eved Ivri, a person sells indentures themselves for a six-year term of service, 
halacha, which doesn't apply anymore, but we would assess it based on Eved Ivri. And the Rush says, no, it's totally different. You should be based on the Eved Kanani market, the non-Jewish slave market, because that's how much the person's body is yeah, assessed to actually have the value. possibly be an Eved Ivri. It's not even a Mechira, right? Not so that's exactly the Rush's question on Rashi. Uh, so that's just an interesting makhluk to note. Uh, the other important thing to note here about ripui, medical expenses, uh, the rush has an important note for all of us. The rush says if the person got some complication from their injury because they didn't listen to the doctor, then that's not the person who caused the damage's fault. That's the, per- the, the person's responsibility. That is, once the doctor tells you the right way to get better, you have to listen to your doctor. Um, it's important to note, you know, many of the Rishonim were doctors, things like that, so it's a... Uh, as, as my Rebbe once told me, he says, Halacha has a love affair with medicine. So, uh, okay, so med- medicine is a good thing. He says, shave it. What does it mean, shave it? What is time off, uh, time off work? We consider that person as if they have the minimal job that they have. This is a halachic sense, uh, a minimum wage. That is, what's the minimum wage or the normal baseline wage? Shomer kishuim, a person who is the watchman for a field of cucumbers or a field of squashes of some kind. Um, presumably, they have to keep the birds away, but probably not thieves or anything like that because it's not a very valuable produce. So, uh, interestingly enough, field of cucumbers or field of squashes, kishuim, uh, comes up in the discussion in Sanhedrin about um, uh, kishuf, that is, magical incantations. Many of the Tanaim seem to have had magical incantations about creating squashes out of nowhere, uh, so it's also an interesting mm-hmm. suya. Okay, so shave it. Shekvar natan lo demeyado Because he was already paid for the actual injury to the hand or to the foot, and that's the reason he's not working, you only assess him at a minimum wage. Because the minimal wage is now that he's already been compensated for the limb. But presumably, that takes into account the fact that the minimal wage really should be higher if you didn't pay it. The, Two, two possibilities. You either pay a person time off of the job they normally have, or that they're normally capable of doing, but then you're not worried about compensating them for the actual injury, because the amount of work that they can do day by day with a good hand is however much. In this case, Halakha says you compensate them for the injured hand, and then... Oh, goodness. So you... Oh, now this turned off. Sorry about that. You compensate them for the, the injured hand, and then at that point, um, you, you, comp- you don't have to pay them the wage of the job that they were already doing. You pay them a minimum wage. So it's just an interesting question. Okay. How, how, how do you uh, compute that for all the years that they, in the future, that they... No, the, the amount of time that they're off, off of work at all. That is, this person is sitting at home doing nothing, recovering from their no, injury. He lost the hand. Right, he's no longer going to be right. able to do that work. Well, I, right. Are you paying him for like twenty years? So, well, my assumption, from what you're explaining, right. is that's the that would be the valuation on the slave market. In other words, right. here's this guy right. with right. two good hands. Right. 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 I'm going to get forty years out of him doing right. the following job. I'm going to pay this amount right. of money. Right. So that's tr- that's the formula for factoring in what you're describing. Okay. Right. right. So you have a few more minutes. Let's try to, to okay. And boshet, important point. Boshet The amount of embarrassment involved in any injury is how much the person causing the embarrassment and how much about the person who got embarrassed. That is, 
if someone very important makes fun of me, that's more embarrassing than if someone very low in our social hierarchy makes fun of me, because I'll say, who cares what he thinks? But if it's someone very important, I would care a lot. The Gemara is now going to go into an extended conversation of one of the most uh, historically important topics in all of Judaism and all of understanding the Torah, which is, what does it mean, ein tachat ein? <clears throat> we know that the what's called in Latin lex talionis, the reciprocal or um, retaliatory uh, law, uh, is about uh, repayment in halacha. That is, if you injure someone, you have to pay them back, not by blinding their eye, but by paying money. Uh, how did halacha get to that point? Is it obviously in some sense a rejection of the the norms of the Near Eastern society at the time. We know that Ayn Tachad Ayn appears in Hammurabi's code and other kind of Eastern law codes as well. Um, and so how does this, and this then later becomes obviously a central point of polemic against Christians and against Karaites. Christians because the Christian uh, New Testament talks about instead of an eye for an eye, rather turn the other cheek. That is, don't worry about retaliation at all. And obviously, halakha, we don't care about retaliation, but we do care about compensation. We care about financial restitution for injuries. And the Karaites took it very literally. If you hurt someone's eye, we're going to hurt you in the eye. That kind of a thing. And halakha rejects that as well. So it becomes a central point of polemic against Christian, Christian interpretation and Karaite interpretation. And uh, it's one of the things that's considered to be uh, that we take this not literally, but we're going to have to see how the sugya evolves. So he said, So why do you have to pay back five things? The Torah says, You pay an eye for an eye. But what does that mean? So Maybe it means, really, you take your eye out and you give it to someone. So Does that really mean if someone blinds my eye, I have to, you know, blind their eye, or if they cut off my hand, we have to cut off their hand. She bear it raglo, mishaber it raglo. They broke my foot, so we're going to break his foot. We compare a person who strikes a person to a person who strikes an animal. If you injure an animal, obviously it doesn't even make sense to, there's no reciprocity there between an animal and a human being. You just pay back the damage. If I hurt your cow, so I have to pay you how much, how much damage I caused. So, ah, therefore, if a person injures a human being, you also just pay back financial restitution and there's no sense of actual injury involved. By the way, I just want to say really quickly that you said it fast, it's fantastically powerful that the Kasha Amai is on the entire Mishnah. Like the why entire Mishnah. Why do you why pay back you anything? This whole structure. Structure. Right. It's really, it's like a very powerful right. Kasha. Right. The Kasha's like, what yeah, do we need from Tarek Right. right. So all Mishnah should be irrelevant. Right. Okay, and the Gemara continues. The Imna Shaklamar Harehu Amer Lotik Chukofer Lenefesh Rotech Asher Hu Rashalamut. So the Pasuk in, in uh, Parshat Mase says, you are not allowed to take kofer, that is some kind of a, uh, a penalty payment in a case of a manslaughter case for a person who is a Rashalamut, a person who is somehow at least partially liable for capital crime, that is in a case of manslaughter. You cannot take kofer, rather he has to go to the Yermiklat, he has to go to the refuge city. So, you cannot take kofer in a capital crime. You can take kofer in the case not of a capital crime, but in a, an injury. If someone cut off my thumb, that is the end of the limb that doesn't grow back. Uh, rather than, say, if they injured me in such a place where it would heal, 
well, then the nezek is going to be less appreciable, like the stabbing case. There's going to be tsar, there's going to be ripui, but there's not going to be nezek in the same way. We don't know from this Sugisokwa that Talmud has any sense of psychological damage that could be caused to somebody else. That is true. It might causing fall under tsar. Causing a trauma to someone right. that incapacitates the person. It's a machloket rishonim about how much is tsar, only the tsar that's caused, the suffering caused oh, right now, the physical, the pain right now, and how much is it the pain that lasts over time? So that gets to the trauma question as well. So, hi, makeh, yileinu makeh, behima, yishalmenu, makeh, adam, yumat. Which makeh? The pasuk said makeh, who hits someone. So which makeh are we talking about? Is it the one from Vayikra that said makeh, behima, yishalmenu? If you strike an animal, you pay it back. Makeh, adam, yumat. And if you hit a person, you should be put to death. That must be referring to hitting a person so much that they die. Obviously, we're not going to execute people for punching people. Like, if I punch someone in the face and it gets up, right, we know that from Mishpatim. Uh, if you get up again, then obviously it's not a capital crime. So what? So that's that's talking about uh, a mortal wound that the person is going to die from. Ella it must be from this pasuk. If you hit a behima and you pay it back, and it's a life for a life. But if it's a life for a life, and if a person injures his friend, whatever he did should be paid back to him. So there are all of these tukim that indicate at the pshat level that we do retaliatory punishments. However, each of them is within the context of paying back financial restitution for injuries to animals. That's the point. And so, therefore, each of those con- connections, uh, Toto gets into the question, is it Gezer Shava using the word Makeh, or is it Smuchim? That is, that they're just next to each other. There are different rules about how some of those are applied. Um, and a fascinating tangential question, which comes up in the Nimuke Yosef in the back, uh, he quotes from the Ra'ah, uh, um, um, who was, who was one of the students of the Rashba in Spain. So the Ra'ah has a whole long discussion there, and it's within the Ramban's school of thought as well. By Gezerah Shabbat, that is one of the principles of, of hermeneutics, where the same word appears in Tupsukim, and we can connect them. So we have a general principle, inadam dan Gezerah Shabbat le'atzmo. You can't make up your own Gezerah Shabbat, because then, what, the word zeh and the word zeh is here both, the word ata and the word ata, so it's totally arbitrary. So obviously you could make up whatever halachot you wanted if that would be the case. So it has to be from a Kabbalah. You have to receive tradition from your teacher going back to his teacher going back. But, says the Ra, interestingly enough, if you already know the Halakha, and you're just trying to provide a mnemonic for it, you could make up your own mnemonic, that is, using the same words to help you remember the Halakha. And it's important because Ramban, uh, in discussion of Sukkah, the Halakha is mitzta'er patr min sukkah the person who is uncomfortable is, and obviously, at what extent are you considered uncomfortable enough to be exempted from the mitzvah of sukkah, but the Rambana connects that to a pasuk from Tehillim and a pasuk in the discussion of the sukkah in Vayikra. And so, all these other Rishonim and Achronim ask, Ramban just made up a drasha? There's no drasha given in the Gemara. It's just given as that halacha. And Ramban came up with his own drasha, so obviously must be Ramban uh, was the teacher of the teacher of the teacher of the Ra'ah, the same tradition, that is, if it's just as a mnemonic, you're already taking an already established law, and just coming up with a, help, a way to help you remember it, that that's okay. It's not making your own Gezer Shabbat in that case. Okay. So what are we talking about? So a person um, 
if, who injures his friend, whatever he did, you should do back to him. I love Makehu. Haka haka kamrinan. Is that not about actually just hitting someone? Because it says kasher asap kenya selo. It sounds like reciprocity. So from that, we have to learn a drasha haka haka. Like or perhaps smuchim using the word haka about hitting kamrinan. Ma haka Just like if you hit an animal, it means for monetary compensation. Therefore, also hitting a person refers to monetary compensation. A person who hits another person should be put to death. That's another pasuk. So it must be bimamon. We don't put you to death. We put your money to death. We take your money away. So that obviously, to a certain extent, we know arbacha shufim kmeit. One of the four people who is considered to be as if dead in some sense is Ani. A poor person in some sense, if they're really destitute, in some sense is almost considered to be uh, compared to a dead person. So in a similar case here, the halakha says, we're going to execute you. It doesn't mean execute, it means we're going to take your money away. Okay, but wait, I don't understand. Why, this pasuk, the clear shot is the yishki yake called nefesh adam otumat, is a fatal injury. Right, and makeh nefesh adam, you hit a person right. to their self. nefesh adam is a fatal injury. As of course. As opposed to the fatal injury to the behema up above, right. the samuch to the, the, right. the blemish that's caused to exactly. a human being. So why, why... So the Gemara is going to ask you a question. The Gemara says, So maybe it's talking about, really, it's about actually a mortal wound. So on one side, it's connected to financial compensation for injuring an animal. And it's written after, That if you injure a person, it will be put back onto you, that we learn from that, mamon. They must be talking about financial compensation. That is, it's bracketed on one side by injuring a person. We, we have three cases, basically. We're trying to figure out what happens if you injure a person. Right. We know if you injure an animal, you pay back the value of the damage. We know that if you kill a person, you, don't. you will be killed. And we don't just let you pay financial rest, retribution, uh, uh, compensation. So the middle case, injuring a person, is that more similar to killing a person or is it more similar to injuring an animal? And that's the Gemara's next question. Why should we learn it from from hitting an animal? We should learn it from hitting a person. So we should learn damages from other damages. We shouldn't learn damages from from Fatal injuries from the death. The Adraba, Danina Dame Adam, we should learn human case to another human case, rather than Danina Dame Beima. And that's a great question on this whole discussion. That is, the whole time we've been trying to say, injuring a person, we should learn from injuring an animal. It should be financial compensation rather than retrib- uh, retribution or, or, or retaliation as it is by a capital crime. But obviously, we're trying to learn from an animal to a human being rather than human being to human being. So that's the conceptual question that's here. So, and that's why there's an, another prohibition on taking financial kofar, that uh, financial uh, penalty, in a case of a capital crime. And therefore, you can take kofar, perhaps you're obligated to take kofar, for the tips of the limbs, which do not grow back. Mm-hmm. People have a few more minutes. We can go up until the two dots. I don't mean to hold people too long. Um, it's just a few more lines. 
So is that really what that pasuk comes to teach? That is, that the exemption from kofar by capital crime comes to include financial payment for the tips of the limbs, that which don't grow back. So Lemeute, exactly, to exclude. That is, you, that you are allowed to take kofar for mm-hmm. limbs, mm-hmm. injuries. So, Haim Baile, Zamarachmana, Lotavut, Tarti, so that you should you should do two things from it. So number one, so lotil that you should not take money from someone who has committed a capital crime. And number two, and that you should kill them. That is, there's a prohibition on taking kofir, and there's the obligation to impose a death penalty. Both of those are learned now from that same pasuk. Don't take kofir because he deserves death penalty. Okay, hi mixdei rishato nafka. So maybe you should learn that from kidei rishato according to his crime, which is another pasuk from the Do not take money to exempt this person. Again, the sense that in a capital crime you cannot pay your way out. In kain lichtov rachmana lotikhokofer laasher hu rashalamut lenefesh roseach. The pasuk could have been phrased differently. So, 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 why does it say, to a murderer? You cannot take kofar in a, in a murderer's case. You can take kofar if the limbs were injured. So then why do I have the pasuk, the gezer shava, to connect it to the animal injuries. So, Amrei, if I had learned it from here, that is, just from the Kofar, Hava Amina Ibae Eno Nativ, Ibae Demei Eno Nativ, I might have thought, you get two options. Number one, if you want to blind the person's eye, you can blind the person's eye. Or, if they want to pay, then they could pay. But it's always two options. But we don't let you take the blinding the eye option. We prevent you from doing that. Kamash Malan, you pay back the financial restitution and you're not allowed to actually go and injure the other person. Um, the anthropological note before we end is that some people have suggested even earlier in human history the way Ein Tachat Ein evolved, that is, the actual direct damaging uh, response evolved in Hammurabi's code as a limit. That is, imagine someone cut off my hand and my whole family is really bothered by that, and they want to get revenge. They're going to go, arm. they'll cut off his arm, they'll kill the person, they'll burn down their house, it'll be escalation of violence. So in Samurabi's code, Ayin Tachar Ayin, you could read as Rak Ayin Tachar Ayin, limiting it. The Torah obviously takes it even further. That is, the rabbinic tradition takes it not as, yes, you're allowed to do exactly equal retribution, but not, no more. We say you're not even allowed to have retribution. You have to just have monetary compensation. So that's where we get up to today. Um, and tomorrow we'll continue with Parak Hachovel. It works fantastic.